and welcome to the Slush Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Ken Mulvaney is the co-founder and CEO of Benevolent AI. Their mission is to accelerate and enhance scientific discovery, and he talked about the subject with Linda Liukas. Um, let me start by asking about the name of the company, Benevolent AI. Is that a philosophical uh, or a vision for, for what you're doing, or where does the name come from? Uh, yeah, so, so the, the name is, is really a, a philosophical thing of, of what the company wants to do. Uh, we want to use artificial intelligence for good. Uh, we're, we're primarily focused on, on the sciences. I spoke a little bit about um, biology today. Uh, it's one of the subsidiaries of Benevolent, uh, where we focus on, on human biology and curing disease. We also look at things like energy and material sciences, things that will ultimately have an impact on humanity in a benevolent sort of way. And the things that we're not really doing is looking at financial technology or social technology and that sort of thing, even though it probably could be applied to that. It's just not something that we're we're inspired by at the moment. Mm. The thing I think about when I think about benevolent is benevolent dictatorship. Uh, how? What is like the most nefarious thing you've ever seen a machine do? Um... Wow, that's. Uh, <laughs> that's I think a, it's Facebook, honestly. But yeah, you well, you know, it, I guess it it, it could be. Um, uh, yeah, obviously, social media has a, a tremendous impact, and I think that that AI can can play a role uh, in you know in in taming some of that, particularly from the news perspective. You know, being able to to determine fact from from fiction, and, and we need to do it all the time because you know what when we're ingesting information. Uh, about, a, say, a particular disease, uh, and we're using the written word to uh, as our data points. Um, often, I'm not going to say a majority of the time, but often, what's written isn't correct, uh, and you see that in scientific literature all the time. So we need we need to form foundations of truth, and foundations of truth in our system is how well interconnected those those entities are that explain the underlying mechanism of disease so there, there we have to we, we need a confidence that 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 a statement is true and i just wonder that even though we're we wouldn't be applying our technology to that may have a benevolent outcome i don't know but um uh you could see that the technology could be used uh to to help with, with social media and, and news and such like that. I'll ask like the counter question to the nefarious stuff. Like, what is the most human thing you've ever seen a machine do? When we think about health, we often think about humans. So, what is kind of like the most humanistic thing you've ever seen a machine do? Uh, well, I mean, I I, uh, I see all these kind of robotic things that that are uh, are happening and and how. Um, many of these, the intonations of language, facial expressions, all of these things are, are being able to be uh, mimicked uh, in machines. And sometimes it's absolutely uncanny. And I, I saw one recently where uh, it, it, it took a standard photo, right, of just a picture of your face, uh, and then it made you look happy or sad, or surprised, or, you know, it just in one photo, and it changed the expression. And then there was also, also these, these, these morphing photos where it, you know, it changed from one person to another, but it was so subtle. 
uh, what's happening. So I, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. There's there's a lot of kind of human elements that are beginning to show their face. Uh, I read in, that they are teaching machines now to recognize disappointment as an emotion by showing them uh, true. I uh, know the Price is Right. This like TV show, the American TV show, where people are really like, oh, and <laughs> that's how they learn to recognize disappointment. You mentioned data, something. Um, uh, that you're like looking into. Uh, I have an audience question on Slido.com about that. It comes from Gustav, and he asks, how much of the data you process is public data, like science papers, and how much of it is academic corporate data, which is proprietary? Um, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, the, we have both. We have proprietary data uh, and, and public data in our system. Um, the majority of information that we use to extract knowledge comes from public sources. So it might be 90 million patents that we ingest, or uh, or 90 million yeah. patents. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> um, and then and then from that, every every clause of every sentence of every paragraph uh, is um, is extracted, and there's a statement which is made. And sometimes those statements are made uh, within a clause or within a sentence. Sometimes it takes the whole paragraph to pull out that right, because it may be in the sentence above it's 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 hypothesizing what this what the sentence or what the paragraph means or what the paper means it's kind of digesting the meaning of that um, so and that itself has created a uh, a database of uh, I think that maybe 1.4 billion different facts uh, and at the moment it, it is the largest repository on this planet and of, is that uh, public facts. or pri proprietary? That's, that's private. Um, do you think there's going to be a Google of healthcare, like someone who's just going to have massive amounts of data that they can play around with, or is it going to? Well, there, there is a massive amount of, of information. That was one of the things that I was talking about today. It's, it's actually what does that information mean? Uh, and, um, uh, and I think that's, that's where machine learning uh, and reasoning on top of the graph uh, is, is coming into its own. It, it's kind of deducing, okay, well, um, here, here are all these things that are happening with disease. You know, you've got symptoms, you've got, you've got pathways, you've got mechanism. Uh, and, and the way that our, our system understands disease, uh, we actually aren't entirely sure what it is, right? Because it, it's a learning system. It has learned what it believes to be what a disease is, uh, and uh, and then it's using that uh, to determine what it thinks is the cause of that disease. And has anything gone wrong? <laughs> Sorry for being such a pessimist. <laughs> uh, well, as it turns out, about eighty percent of the hypotheses that the system generates are are accurate. Amazing. That's yeah. probably better than humans. <laughs> oh, it, we, uh, the pharma industry is six percent. 6%, wow, okay. Hey, thank you everyone in the audience. I've gotten a lot of questions from here. I'll take two more questions from Slido and then we'll take a pause and ask questions from the real uh, live people here uh, present with the Catchbox um, device. So second question of the day comes from Risto. Uh, he says, we all know GIGO principles. So I'm the first one to admit I don't know GIGO principles. So maybe you start by explaining that really quickly. And his question is, how do you see different AI companies ensuring quality of their source data for suggestions slash findings with sufficient certainty? Uh, this sounds like a very technical question. <laughs> uh, and I have to admit that I'm not a technologist per se. I'm a technology investor uh, rather than a, a technology uh, itself. And it sounds like uh, the, the, 
the Go terms are, are ontologies. Um, obviously, ontologies are incredibly important in, in biology. Uh, so we, we use and adapt uh, those, those types of ontologies uh, to, to use for, for extracting information. I gotcha. hope that, that someone um, answers it. Then there's a question from Marti who asks, not sure if you've heard about Cathy O'Neill's book Weapons of Math Destruction, but what do you think about the risks of algorithms being wrong or used wrongly? Kind of answered well, yeah. that with the hypothesis. Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> think it's obviously it's, it's, it's a real possibility. Uh, and again, you, you, you see it particularly in, in these, these self-learning uh, algorithms where they're picking up traits, undesirable traits like biases uh, or prejudices al along the way. Um, and, and one of the, the thoughts that, that we had in, in terms of, of, of training our system, and again, thinking a little bit about the benevolent name uh, as well, it, we're, we're, we're training our system to learn on a body of knowledge which is inherently, its purpose is to promote and improve human health. Uh, and, um, and I think that that's, that's kind of an important distinction that we've made as a company. We're only going uh, to expose our learning algorithms to what we feel is going to be kind of inherently beneficial. Cool. So let's take a small pause and ask for questions from the audience. If you raise your hands, one of the team members here will throw you a catch box. And the way it works, you just put it under your, um, like here, and then talk to the box. <laughs> so uh, over here at the front row. So uh, I would want to know a bit more about your business model. So how do you choose what uh, diseases to tackle? So does someone come to you and ask, please solve this? Or do you come up with the ideas yourself? It's a good question. Um, and there's two answers to that. Uh, in, in the first instance, we, we look for things where, where there's a massive unmet need. Okay, so there, there are things that there is no cure. So ALS is a good example. Glioblastoma is a good example. Things that, that there isn't a treatment for, for, for doing those. And, and also, the more complex the disease is, the better it lends to this type of technology. So something like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy um, is, is a terrible disease. But we, we actually know what's happening in that disease. There's a, there's a mutation in the dystrophin gene. But whereas something like ALS, uh, it really wasn't known because there's so many different things that are happening. Parkinson's disease is more of a syndrome than a disease. Alzheimer's disease, these are things that are just not really known. So we triage based on that. So that's one of the elements, so high unmet need. The second thing is there, there has to be a sufficient amount of information necessary to make these type of deductions. And on average, our system will use 300,000 to 400,000 different data points to determine what it believes to be the hypothesis for something. And if there's too few data points, it will give you a hypothesis, but you don't know how accurate it's going to be. Uh, uh, so there, there's kind of a, a technical hurdle that we need to overcome as well. And you can see that because the, you know, the, the, the challenge with, with all of this type of technology is you can't just propose a hypothesis, right? Because the scientists will have none of it. You know, they're like, well, why would that do that? I have no idea. So, we need, so the system needs to explain the narrative how it came up with that hypothesis, and then it uses all the secondary data points to prove that to the scientists. So right now, there, there, there's a true symbiosis between a research scientist using our system, where the system will propose, this is what I think is happening with the disease, and how this is the, the, the way I think we can modulate it. And then the, the, the scientist itself, or the scientist himself or herself, will go through and, and, and read 
the narrative of why it thinks that. And the system itself will learn from its own successes and failures, and also those from our research scientists that say this is wrong or this is correct. That's fascinating because I think the general sort of uh, machine learning community uh, doesn't like explain itself or the algorithms that happen or the black boxes of, of what's happening inside. So yeah, well, scientists are a curious bunch. Yeah, you can't amazing. just say this does that. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. We had some other people who were excited uh, to ask questions. Um, more hands up, please. Over there in the front row, uh, second row. Basically, I was going to ask, since med medicine is done on an error in trial basis, how will AI be able to determine whether something is actually trustworthy or not? And will other sources such as Facebook profiles or something be used to analyze the trustworthiness of the researchers instead of the actual conducted research? It's a good question. Uh, and this was going back to a point that I made earlier, which is just because something written is written doesn't mean that that it's accurate. Uh, and um, I, I think in, in the beginning, if you, you've kind of go through the evolution of, of our, how the system began, uh, we needed to start with foundations of truth. We, you know, we used, I think it was 120,000 known facts that you know are true. They're kind of that, the, the epistemological, I think, therefore I am, you know, like the molecular weight of water is this. You know, we know that to be true. Uh, and then we looked, we used a, a type of, of, of distant supervision that, that, that we developed in-house to determine the way that scientists talk about that particular entity or relationship. Uh, and, then, and then built upon that to see, well, okay, well, this is how people describe the molecular weight of water, etc. This is how it's supported. Here are how, how all the other things that support that are supported and so on and so forth. So in the beginning, where, where you might look to apply kind of a, a data science approach to something, looking at, okay, well, this is where this was published, this is when this was published, this is who published it, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Just doesn't work in science, because it doesn't matter whether it was a nature seminal paper or not, there's still wrong statements in that paper. Uh, and we needed to have a higher degree of confidence that those statements are accurate, because if you're beginning to extrapolate on those, you need to know that the foundations are accurate. Uh, then my second question was, as a person of interest to this topic myself, what will this mean to future doctors? Will there be some type of computer program that, like, similar to WebMD, which people just research symptoms on, or rather, are scientists slash doctors going to be focusing more on this is what this said and this is why we're doing it, or using their own knowledge to do and help people? Also, as we know, we're living in a revolution of technology, so clearly the future of doctors is going to be more coding and stuff. What will AI mean to these people? Um, yeah, so I, I think, I think we're, we're now at the point, um, you know, where, where we where earlier I was talking about the, the information age. It's, it's making that information available for people to, to consume. Uh, and, and I think what, what, what AI adds to that equation is, is kind of understanding what that information means to say. So, you know, so you can say that your symptoms are A, B, C, D, and E, but actually what does that, what does that mean uh, to, uh, to the disease? And I think that, again, there, there'll be, there'll be a, a symbiosis between, um, you know, 
physicians who are, who are treating patients uh, and, and the technology that they consume to help them have more informed judgment and, and be able to scale that because you don't need to be an expert uh, on any of these things. You know, when I look at the type of programs that Benevolent Bio has, it's, you know, it has 20 drug development programs and they're all over the place. You know, we don't need to be domain experts in those areas anymore to understand what's happening. Let's take one more question from the audience and then we'll move back to the Slido. So those of you who are new in the room, the way this works is we have slido.com where you can ask questions or then just like raise your hand at specific intervals and ask questions. Sir, we have the next question. So uh, I'm kind of a fan of uh, the work that Craig Venter has done and, and all that stuff. And of course, Kurzweil and, and there's, a, there's a thing there. But I'm, I'm just curious. How, I mean, they have basically booted up uh, embryo or it's like a cell. Uh, and I'm just curious about medicine and how far away are we, how, how much is synthetic? Like how, how much can you build from scratch now uh, compared to like using existing stuff and putting it together? Like uh, is it, and, and how's, how does AI apply to that? Because that's like an evolutionary thing, right? So just talk a little bit about you know, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that really soon we will have personally, like my DNA is going to decide what, the, what kind of medicine I need. And, and how, well, what's the status? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm ha happy to, to take a stab at that. Um, so, I mean, one of the big challenges that, that we have uh, at the moment, you know, if, 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 since the, the, he, the genome had, uh, has been coded, um, is, is actually we don't know what these genes do, right? We, we, you know, we've got kind of 20, 25,000 different genes, they code proteins, uh, and uh, as it turns out, I sit on, uh, on the United Kingdom's government's panel on, on Genomic England, you know, it, and, and we sit around the room um, with, with other illustrious AI companies like DeepMind and Geneticist and so on and so forth, uh, and, and we all know that we need to understand what these genes do. And AI provides a vehicle for that to happen. And that's just our 25, 20,000 coded genes. We are, we, and that represents about 1% of our genome. We've got 99% of the genome that we, we actually don't have a clue what it does. And then in addition to that, we've, we've got a kind of a, a biome which also has genes, which is also affecting our genes. You know, because a, 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 a bacterium, as an example, may produce a transcription factor which binds to human DNA and, and allows that to be transcribed. So there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to, to, to happen now to begin to understand how this all fits together. And AI is uniquely positioned because it's able to, to take all of these variables simultaneously. And when I think of, uh, of our system, we're, we're, we currently track 220 million variables simultaneously. I tell you, I can hardly hold four in my head, let alone that number. And you need to have that sort of scale to be able to reason on top of that knowledge. Beautiful. I have a question related to Slush here and maybe um, the Nordics in general. Uh, there's a question from Oliver, and he asks, which areas have the Nordics been most interesting in with regards to AI slash data? Have you seen any interesting companies here? Or? Uh, I, yeah, well, I, I'm going to be spending the rest of my time here mingling with everyone. Uh, so I, I, I haven't had a chance, actually, <laughs> to, uh, to, to spend with, with people. 
Um, but I, I hope to do that now. Did you know anything about the Nordics or, or sort of the tech legacy over here before prior to arriving? Uh, I, you know, I did it. And I have to say, I, I, was, uh, I was interviewed after I came off stage and they asked me what I thought of, of Slush. And I've never been before. It's my first time. Uh, and I have to say, when I came in, it was an amazing vibe here. It really was. And I, I, I actually cannot wait to get out there uh, and, and start mingling with people. Beautiful. Um, I have a question about uh, from Hong who asks, how do you see the relationship with AI and biometrics related to our emotions? Not necessarily about apparent diseases, but about enhancing our holistic well-being. Yeah, no, that's that's important. Uh, and um, and it, uh, I guess I, I have seen some people that are working on that sort of thing. And it, um, and, and it's a, it's a well-known, it's a well-documented fact that that uh, you know well-being makes a big difference. And you, you don't have to go any further than the placebo effect, looking at a, at, at a medicine and comparing it to a sugar pill, where that kind of positive attitude lifts, you know, almost, you, you know, when you look at it, it has seemingly the same effect as the treatment drug itself does. Uh, and I see a lot of companies now that are beginning to focus on that. And they, they tend to be um, like health insurance type companies where they have a, a shorter interval management with the patient. So w when, they, when they see patients that are beginning to trend in a particular d uh, direction, you know, maybe they're not getting up, they've got a little motion detector on their wrist or a smartwatch or whatever it is, um, or they're not having their prescriptions filled, they basically will call them up on the phone or go and visit them to try to improve their, their health outcomes, uh, irrespective of the medicine that they're taking. Cool. And since there's new people in the room and repetition is a virtue, um, I have a question from, from Bob who asks, I still don't fully understand what benevolent AI does. Can you take a few minutes to explain, please? Okay. Um, so the, the company is focused on scientific innovation. You know, so we, we, we ingest a lot of information in the sciences and, and I, I'll, I'll focus on biology uh, just because I, I spoke about that, that earlier. Um, and what we're trying to do is, is in the first instance, get everything which is known about something. It's kind of giving us an, an even playing field. And when, when you look at, at pharma as an industry, you have very deep domain expertise, but not very wide. And what I mean is, if you're a neuroscientist, you understand neuroscience very deeply, but not very widely. And if you're an immunologist, you understand immunology very deeply, but not very widely. And beyond some kind of basic biological and drug development principles, kind of never the two shall meet. Uh, and in starting this company, that was one of the two things that I wanted to address, is, is really democratizing that information and understanding so, so that all of our scientists could go as deeply or as widely as they need to go to understand a particular disease. The next piece of that, the second kind of pillar of, of the company, is, is one of hypothesis generation. Uh, and, and unfortunately, um, we're good but we're not really, really good at coming up with hypotheses. And, and you don't have to go any further than looking at human disease to know that's the case. Because if we were really good at it, we would have cured human disease already, but we just haven't yet. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there's been about 550 discoveries made in the history of modern medicine, you know, where, where a disease and its cause have been linked. You know, there's a lot of drugs out there. You know, there's 3,000 odd drugs that are out there, but they're all kind of hitting the same sorts of targets. 
And as an industry, we've relied on academia to make that link for us. Right? It's generally academia that's saying this is linked to that. And they're hypothesizing the case, and in time we'll learn whether that, that's true or not. Energy is another one where, where, where energy, let's say, energy density is an issue. You know, I, I, people like Tesla have done a great job in making your, your, your Tesla go from zero to 60 in two seconds or whatever the ludicrous mode is on, uh, on, on those things. But if you want to get something heavy off the ground and keep it aloft, you need far more density. And things like lithium ion will never hit it. You need something that's able to donate far more electrons than lithium is, which is a one donator. You need something like, like aluminum, which is a three donator. But yet, as an industry, they haven't been able to, to make that work. Uh, whereas you can look at far, far more variables with, with this type of technology than you ever would be able to uh, using conventional computing. Cool. I think we have time for one or two more questions from the audience, and then I'll close off with a final question from Slido. Uh, anyone wants to ask a burning question at this point? For biotech, you had the Monterey conference uh, regulating or giving... Uh, uh, say boundaries to research. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on regulating AI. Should it be regulated in somehow? Where we focus um, our technology are areas that are very, very highly regulated. Okay, so to put a chemical into a human body is an extremely regulated industry. Uh, I don't feel like we need to regulated anymore about it, it's it's self-evident in a way You're, the, the the regulators don't care how we came up with a hypothesis they just need to understand the biology of that hypothesis know that the medicine that we're proposing is safe and well tolerated and has the effect uh, on the disease that we propose that it, it's going to have. So it is an exceedingly regulated, and, and I, I submit that it's probably the most regulated industry on earth. I'll scratch the before question, uh, one question thing. I'll ask a really quick other question because this seems to be very meaningful for the person asking. Uh, Sophie is asking, is any research being conducted on MS? Uh, yes, uh, we, in fact, we have an MS program uh, at Benevolent. Uh, and it's it's an area of um, of high unmet need, and I think what, what's interesting of, of uh, being doing the things that that we do, it, we we have a you know we have a big team of of technologists um, and a big team of biologists and big team of all sorts of different people. Uh, but what we do do on a regular basis is we bring in patients to talk about their their condition uh, and and. The, the coders are the most inspired by that because they, they will never have had that exposure. Uh, and we, we had, a, we had a, a wonderful woman in uh, talking about, uh, about MS. Uh, and you, know, you could see the impact on people's faces uh, as she went through it. And, and, and they, my, you know, my team is inspired by that. I, personally, I, I think that they're excited about coming into work because they're actually making a very, very big difference in the outcome of people's lives. So final, final question. And um, it's about education. So you guys want people who can go as deep as they want, but also as, be as broad as they want. If you were to redesign sort of the medical school or uh, the machine learning science community from scratch and make a whole new kind of school to sort of create new benevolent employees or new founders, uh, what kind of school would you do? And then there's a follow-up question kind of from 
uh, Slido, there's someone asking what kind of recommendations would you have for researchers on tools to be able to today utilize AI for analysis of data already published. So ideal situation from scratch and then practical examples to wrap up this session. Okay, so from, from scratch. Uh, okay, so this is medical school from scratch. Medical, but also tech school from scratch. Okay. Like, how would you? Um, uh, well, how I would can't, you change the I, existing? I can't speak for tech school because <laughs> I've never attended one, so I don't know what it's like. I don't, I'm not sure what the state of the art is there. Um, uh, but you know, I I, I think that um, uh, I'm not sure I would change a lot about about medical school because it, it, it's. You, you need to have those foundations of biology. Uh, I'm sure that there are better ways to learn that. Uh, and I'm sure the way that students are learning things today are very different from what I had learned in the past. And I'm sure they're much, much better now than, than they were at the time in using this type of technology. Uh, the, I, I spoke a little bit about what, what norms are uh, and, and how how things like like WebMD and, and that those type of information dispensers are are the absolute norms today, and I think that in in some amount of time, you know, we'll have this type of technology, which is also deployable, deployable, uh, which allows us to understand the underlying uh, conditions as well, and I think that that will also be integral uh, in um, uh, in medicine, and will probably rely less on on um, you know that that green fingered uh, approach where, where where you have very very good medical specialists who are able to kind of pinpoint what's happening. It will be more commonplace to be able to do that in the future. Beautiful. Thank you. We're all out of time, so I want to give a warm uh, round of applause. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Slush Podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.